Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. We're on part 14 and we're beginning chapter 20. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast. And starting now in January 2023, there'll be an extra book that I'm reading over on the patron-only area. So there's an extra text there if you want to get ahead of what's happening here on the Mariner's Library. So that's over at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And now on with the story. Chapter 20. London to Peterhead. In 1927, my friend Jackson arranged to take a long holiday, long enough to sail with me where we wanted to sail, and a bit over to let him get back home. We discussed plans. The Joan had been sailed south, and she had been sailed east. It seemed only right that we should continue her career and sail north and west. There were many inducements to sail that way. My partner and I wanted a good cruise, and we knew in which direction the next continent lay. The northern route to America could be divided into short passages, and we could sail joyfully and gently from harbour to harbour, from London along the coast to the Orkneys and the Shetlands and the Faroes. It was then a mere jump to Iceland, thence to Greenland, where, so we read, were harbours and settlements, and that was a mere 700 miles. Labrador lay only another 600 further, thus there were many short passages, and just two longish ones. And the names carried for us a glamour with them. A place which I have not seen has an attraction for me, and the more distant it is, the more I should like to go there. The fact that I know very little about it gives it only a stronger pull, and consider the series of names before us. The Orkneys, Shetlands, Faroes, Iceland, Greenland, Labrador. The glamour grew and grew from name to name. The Orkneys not only lay by the rushing waters of the Pentland Firth, but were the home of farmers, who fished for a living. The Shetlands, in addition to their ponies, contained fishermen who farmed for their living. The Faroes were better still. We did not know what they were famous for, but there was bound to be something, and we would find it out. Iceland was sure ground. Were there not volcanoes and geysers, a land composed of uninhabitable mountains, and a sea that teemed, absolutely teemed, with fish? Then, in the Book of Sailing Directions, there was a warning not to make a landfall east of Cape Portland. Sailing vessels in particular were warned against going to Iceland at all. If they insisted upon going, they were warned to keep west of Cape Portland at all times. Once they had made their landfall to the west of this cape, they were advised to get away as quickly as they could, for a bad enough fate lay lurking for them even on the south coast, and so on. It was enough to make any skipper with a month or two to spare go there to see what it was all about. Greenland was a veritable magnet. That land was still unexplored, and expensive expeditions were still sent to discover the true shape of bits of its coast. Heroic names strewed the chart along the few stretches that were known. The ice-bound cliffs were unmarked by a single lighthouse. There were no harbours or settlements on the east coast, and the few which existed on the west coast were forbidden places. No ship was allowed to visit Greenland without special permission, and one could not even buy a chart of any use. With my eyes shut, I could draw from memory a chart of Greenland, as suitable for navigating those seas as any that can be bought in London. Is there any reader, now, who does not want to rush to Greenland? 
but I am running past myself. There were innumerable other attractions which made us want to take this route to America. Icebergs. I had never seen one and it was quite certain that the Joan ought never to see one. And whales. An experienced captain once told me that the Joan might be charged by a whale and what would happen then, he asked. Naturally, I could not answer the question. The Arctic Circle was close handy and the Northern Lights might be showing and it was manifestly impossible for us to take any other route to America. Jackson was sure of this and so was I. Jackson and I met a few times to discuss plans, but we found that these were so simple that discussion was needless. Each of us was to do what he liked or what he could. I laid myself out to get the boat ready and Jackson laid himself out to get himself ready. In addition to this essential duty, he promised to study the art of cooking. The boat took me longer to prepare for this cruise than usual. For three months she lay on a beach at Greenwich and there she was thoroughly overhauled to make sure that everything was sound and strong. I overhauled her myself and the shipwrights overhauled her. Everyone who visited the beach was invited to overhaul her and to tell us what was wrong. Never was a boat so overhauled by so many earnest critics and they showed that they were critics of the right kind for they would always lend a hand when help was needed. A plank on the port side had been damaged in 1926. The shipwright fastened a stout oak support inside. New bolts were put in to the channel plate of the runner on the same side. He found a small length of a plank edge in poor condition on the starboard side, and so a new pitch pine plank was put in its place. A new piece was put in the lower corner of the transom, and the edges of the transom were coppered all the way down. The rudder had new pintles fitted. All the seams were minutely examined, and wherever they seemed to need it, they were recorked. I had a new sliding hatch made, and the cabin roof was re-canvassed. When Jackson joined me about the middle of June, we saw that unless we started unprepared, we should never start at all. I was not worried by this, for the Joan never has been in quite perfect sailing trim, everything just as it should be, until the end of the season, when she has to be dismantled for the winter. I think this habit quite common. But since I had been living on the boat and sailing her for some weeks, it was good enough to get on with, and we could finish things as we went along, so we loaded with food stores at Erith. There were tins of bully beef, and tins of milk, and tins of biscuits, and tins of flour, and tins of oatmeal, and tins of everything else. The mate filled my cubicle ashore with tins, and then I went away so as to give him a free hand in stowing all these tins on the yacht. I had had too much experience of the brain and muscle straining labour which was always required to fill the Joan with cruising stores. When I next appeared, the work was done. Only Jackson, who has studied Stevens on stowage, knew how, but it was well done. Only four biscuit tins were visible. They took up most of the available floor space, it is true, but we put this right by leaving the cabin table ashore. We covered the biscuits with a flag and thenceforth used them as a table instead. What have you put in the lockers under my bunk? I asked him. Uh, biscuit tins, milk tins, beef tins. And what's under yours? Uh, tins of... Okay, all right, I know. Any locker that isn't full of tins? Well, if you can find one, there are more tins to stow there. But the yacht was packed tight to the brim, and she remained packed tight all through, for we scarcely touched our tin stores. We could generally lay in enough fresh bread and food to last from one port of call to another. We carried a new linen mainsail and foresail. The mainsail had still to be bent, and for this we were awaiting a fine day and a prospect of light-settled weather. Meanwhile, 
the old mainsail served. There was also a big jib of a very light material, a jib that set with beauty and effect. In light airs, when every other sail seemed to be utterly useless, this big, graceful sail would flow out in sweeping curves like those of the foresail of a sailing barge, and with never a wrinkle in it, that sail would pull steadily. Then we had a stout storm jib, which we never used as a jib at all, for when the wind was fierce enough to make so tiny a sail necessary, it was far too fierce for anything at all. So we generally used this jib for a pillow, or as a covering to the weather edge of the cuddy top, when we lay on our sea anchor. We owned, too, a strong trysail to replace our mainsail in bad weather, when it became too uncomfortable to lie under our smallest reefed main. This trysail was hoisted by the main halyard up to the mast to which it was laced, and it was sheeted to the main horse by a tackle. It had neither boom nor gaff. Sometimes, although all too rarely, the wind has been strong enough and suitable enough in direction to let us use this trysail and our foresail to sail with. Then, sailing is really and truly a deed of pleasure. When you have the force of a powerful wind at your service, and your sails are small and strong and unembarrassed by spars swinging about aloft, and you have every confidence in the strength and capacity of your ship, then indeed you can in a manner let yourself go and defy the wind and waves. And you defy them because you are using your own brains and the brains of your forebears to circumvent the forces of destruction that threaten you upon all sides. An entirely new addition to the sail locker this year was a small square sail and a yard of 12 feet long. We dearly wanted to set a square sail to go running for days and days with it, According to all the accounts we could collect, when you were lucky enough to have a good wind right behind you, a square sail was the thing needed. A fore and aft mainsail hanging out all upon one side of the boat, with its heavy boom helping to lay the yacht over, and worrying the steersman with its ever-present menace of jibing, was a sail that required skill to use and to steer with. And steering with a strong wind right aft is one of the most tiring jobs to be done on a small boat, but with a square sail, so the authorities said, all worry was removed. Steering became child's play so far as the strength and skill required. There was not the smallest danger of jibing, and you could almost go to sleep while you steered. And who knew? Perhaps a Joan might do as other boats have done and sail herself. If only the little beast, as I have frequently called her, when she is required of me more constancy of attention than I felt disposed to give her, if only she would steer herself. So I ordered a fine new square sail and a fine new yard and we stowed the yard upon our narrow deck and put the sail in the locker to await a favourable moment for experiment. On the 29th of June, we slipped our moorings at Erith and set out on the voyage. The club gave us a parting salute of one gun, to which we replied by dipping the ensign, which we had hoisted for this very purpose. We had been coached in the way of performing this ceremony by an expert in these matters, but there seemed a deal to remember, and we may have done it the wrong way for all I know. Our dinghy we left behind on the moorings. We could not carry it on deck and it was impossible to tow it across the Atlantic. It was often inconvenient and expensive to be without our own means of getting ashore, but we sailed quicker without the drag of a little boat behind us and we stayed less time in harbour. Whenever we could not land at a place we soon sailed from it and frequently there was not so many arrangements to be made for the use of a dinghy and we were so much at the mercy of longshoremen that we preferred to get on with the cruise. We'd come out to sail. Jackson had contracted with me to go gently for a week or two so that he might have a fair chance to become fit and to adapt himself to the motion of the boat. Coming straight from hard work in a city office, 
he considered it unwise for him to start at once on a long passage which might prove a strenuous one. I was supposed to be already hardened and capable of anything. I thanked him for the compliment, and we went first to Pin Mill on the River Orwell and rested for twenty-four hours. We did not go ashore as it rained most of the time. The next day we went away for Lowestoff and the passage to Orford was wet and trying. This gave Jackson a good opportunity to begin getting fit. Nobody can attain this condition until they have been sea-soaked once or twice and accepted the soaking with charming manners. I do not mean that a man must merely repress his rage when he gets a pail of water down his neck. No, no, he must do much better. The very idea of rage should not even occur to him. When a man can joyfully stub his bare toe on an iron cleat and trip over the anchor on a dark night, <laughs> no, no, really, when a man can do that, perhaps he would be too fit, and I'm hanged if I would go shipmates with a man like that. The remainder of the passage called for the exercise of no great virtue. When the wind blew, we sailed on our course, and when it failed, we drifted where the tide took us, and at last we reached the harbour. The usual boatman hovered around us as we drifted into Lowestoft Harbour next day, but he was a polite boatman, and he did not force his offer of help too much, and when we found that he would be content with less than a ridiculously high reward, we were glad to make use of his services. We explained that we wanted drinking water, while his first offer was to fill our tanks with a pail, but on learning that we wanted 80 gallons, he withdrew his offer. He towed us instead to one of the basins of the harbour, and there by means of a hose we filled our tanks. A small group of fishermen and holiday folk were curious to know why we wanted so much water on so small a boat. It was obvious to them that there would be no room for beer, and holidays could not be spent on a yacht by a beerless crew. After the yacht had been towed off to her quarters, and there safely tied by our friend the boatman, we hired one of his boats so that we might be able to go ashore whenever we had a mind to. He charged half a crown for towing us round the harbour, and another for berthing us. A little later on, after I'd bought a pair of rubber boots and an oilskin jacket, I presented him with the old ones which were of no use to me. He was overjoyed, and said he could easily turn the jacket into a new one, and swore that the boots were good enough for anybody. The old jacket, he found by immediate trial, was a perfect fit, and he gave me back a shilling and agreed to charge nothing for the hire of his boat. I liked him. After a day in Lowestoft, there came a fair wind, and out we went. The wind blew fair and strong for two days, without a pause, while we went north to Berwick. In sailing language, we were running, and running with the wind exactly behind us. We all like to go the way the wind blows, but whenever the two ways are the same to a degree or two, it makes steering hard work, and what is a great deal more tiring than hard work, it requires vigilant attention every second of your time. In our arrangement, the steersman had four hours of this, and when he changed over, he found more of his energy and attention required to cook and eat and do whatever else he wanted to do before getting into his bunk for a sleep and a rest. Besides the work you have to do to keep your balance in the boat as she rolls and slides with quick rushes on her way, it is especially trying to an unaccustomed stomach. The two days to Berwick gave the mate another splendid opportunity to get fit. I was as glad as he was to go into the harbour to be at peace for a day, but it was a bad policy. The wind was still fair and strong, and if we had kept on, we should have reached Peterhead next day. By going into Berwick, we rested during the remaining day's good wind, and the next day it had turned against us. We waited some four days in Berwick, 
then drifted out in desperation, and what with foul winds and light winds and no winds, we took another three days to reach Peterhead. It does not pay to waste a fair wind when you depend upon that source of power. Our stay in Berwick, however, was not altogether wasted. We did a great deal of work on the boat and we stretched our legs ashore. Getting ashore was a simple matter here. A ferry boat that plies to and fro passed us as we lay at anchor and we had only to hail him as he approached. This convenience made us mightily pleased with Berwick. We spent a little of our time watching the salmon fishing. There is always one interesting minute in this ceremony. When the net is pulled to shore, the salmon collect in the end, that is to say, whenever there are any salmon. We saw several hauls, but only once did we see a salmon taken. I was glad to see that even this kind of fishing requires a little effort and shows that many salmon possess the useful virtue of artfulness. Near Flamborough, we had made our first experiment with the squaresel. After much time and labour, we got it bent and hoisted and sheeted and at once recognised it for a failure, at least as we had arranged it. We had used the foresail halyard to hoist it, and had a loop of rope to keep the middle of the yard close to the mast, and there were two braces and two sheets. The yard seesawed persistently against the shrouds, the sail set badly because it was not pulled tight enough along the yard, and it was far too small. I had ordered a bonnet to lace along the foot, but the sailmaker had been good enough to forget to send this part. We found afterwards that he had not even troubled to make it, and as I had been foolish enough to pay all my debts before leaving Erith, I saw little likelihood of getting any satisfaction to say nothing of ever getting the bonnet. We looked at the absurd thing long enough to see all its faults, and then we hauled it down. During our four days' rest in Berwick, we made several changes in our mode of handling the squaresel. We hoisted the sail up the forestay this time, and we stretched it well along the yard, to which we bent it permanently. Besides braces and sheets, Jackson put on a few gaskets and brails, so that if only we ever succeeded in learning the tricks of the apparatus, we might be able to raise and lower it single-handed. The sail did not look well in the harbour. Stowed up aloft, it gave to the yacht a daredevil deep-sea look, which flattered the crew and tickled other people. Before we left Berwick, we stowed the yard with all its gear along the starboard deck, and there we left it, untouched until we finally discarded it. We never dared to try it. Jackson discovered that even to hoist and stow our foresail was arduous and risky work when there was anything of wind blowing in the open sea, and since our squaresail without its bonnet could never be serviceable, except in really hard winds, we saw both of us that it would be quite unmanageable by the small crew of the Joan. We were very sorry, for Jackson had given much time and thought and labour to this squaresail, and I had given far too much money. From Berwick, we made Peterhead, a weary passage of three days. As we drew near, we saw a number of steam drifters making for the harbour. We thought we should do well to let them get in out of our way, but as we sailed and looked, their number did not seem to diminish. As fast as one dozen entered the harbour, another dozen came up from the horizon and maintained a never-ending line. I don't like steamboats of any kind, speaking from a yacht-sailing point of view, but steam-fishing boats are the kind I like least. They are so dirty and tarry and fish-oily that a touch from one of them will slime a good-looking boat for ever. We did not want to go near one in the Joan, and yet judged that we should have to enter the harbour where they lay so that we might get ashore. We sailed into the outer harbour with the arriving drifters to take stock of things. It was plainly a waste of time to anchor there. There was nobody about on the quay or shore, and there were no dinghies. 
The only boats were the drifters going into the inner basins. Each of them circled round the harbour and, aiming at the entrance to the basin, shot in as close behind its predecessor as it could. The inner harbours appeared to us to be chock-a-block. When we asked the crew of a drifter what would happen if we went in, nobody understood us and we understood nobody. Spoken Scotch was incomprehensible to us and in despair we decided to run in and find out for ourselves what would happen to us. We went in slowly to the disgust of the drifters and to the dismay of a harbour official. He shouted his loudest instructions but we did not grasp a word he said. He waved his arms and we went in the direction of his waving. Getting a couple of lines to a key wall, we tied temporarily in a corner which seemed too small and awkward for drifters to trouble about. But we were mistaken. We had to shift the position continually. The fishing boats crowded into that corner while waiting to go out, and we became horribly filthy. Fish oil and tar covered our ropes and we never got rid of them. Dust, grit, stones, soot and fish scales covered our decks and were blown into the cabin. It was an ordeal, and we were glad when we were able to get away. But there were compensations. We filled up with fresh food and water. We got several jobs done in the town, and we could get ashore whenever we liked. These deeds were, however, what we had come to do. There was another compensation even greater. Yacht harbours are clean and respectable, but although I have to be somewhat clean and very respectable, and although I have to keep my boat as near that standard as I can, I hate to turn so-called cleanliness and respectability into objects of existence. As a means of attaining some real thing that you may desire, they may be efficient. But a deal of work and life is more interesting and exciting than being clean and respectable. The work and life on a fishing boat is an example. We hobnobbed with a few of the fishermen, looked over their boats, learned a little, a very little, of how herrings are caught and what the herring fisher's life was like, and accepted with thanks their offer of fresh fish. Herrings were cheap in Peterhead at the moment, so cheap that nobody thought of paying for them, and as a result I fancy few people ate them. Any drifter would give you a bucket of fish for the asking, and I ate my fill of fresh herring, and Jackson ate his. Although Jackson is so much bigger than I, his appetite for fresh herrings was far smaller than mine. One boat that we went aboard was a two-masted vessel of about 60 feet length, she was fitted with a powerful motor. The masts had been reduced, but lug sails were still kept aboard in case of breakdown. The vessel was immensely strong, fit to stand any knocking about she could get. The cabin, sleeping bunks, dining room and engine were all lumped together in one compartment. Engines are good things to have, but I thought that this was having too much of a good thing. But then the crew were Scotchmen. The harbours were empty by five o'clock, and the Joan had the water and keys to herself. Next morning, the drifters came in again with their night's catch, and until the afternoon, boat after boat unloaded its herrings into barrels. These were all cleaned by girls, who sometimes cleaned off fingers and thumbs in their speed. Then the fish were salted in barrels, and shipped at once to Hamburg and other continental ports. The only Londoners who got any were Jackson and I. One day Jackson got yarning with the blacksmith, and found that he had forged many a harpoon for the old Peterhead whalers, he was still so much interested in the work that although nobody wanted harpoons, he was teaching his son how to make them. He desired that the traditions should not be lost. The mate was all agog at once to go whaling, and after he had examined the old man's specimens and listened to his tales, he returned to the yacht and told me all about them. 
So far as the Joan is concerned, said I, you'll think yourself lucky if you even spot a whale, or if some people's stories are true, it might be unlucky. As for harpoons aboard this boat, don't think of it. I couldn't bear the sight of any more cargo. Buy more matches instead. I wanted a blacksmith to do a small job for me, so I hunted for Jackson's man. I found another instead, who undertook my work and said he was a maker of harpoons, and that the other blacksmith's assumption of being the sole craftsman left in Peterhead was unwarranted. He showed me his collection of harpoons, most of them rusty, and I promised to send Jackson along. We might just as well sniff at the smell of adventure while we could, for it was unlikely that we should get any of the real thing. Many men in Peterhead asked where we were going, and when we told them that we were thinking of looking at the Orkneys, they generally laughed and retired without inquiring for details. One little old man, however, thought we were serious and was distressed on our account. He waylaid me several times a day and employed me not to go to the Orkneys. The sea there was a bad sea and the weather was nearly always stormy and he could see by the look of me that the boat would come to grief. He advised me to go home by way of the Caledonian Canal. His perseverance and Scotch were trying and I had to assure him at last that I would do as he wished. He beamed and told everybody the good news. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.